Hello, this is Malcolm Gladwell, and you're listening to Undercurrents, a podcast from the Mennonite Central Committee. Welcome to Undercurrents. My name is Kanoga Sawara, and I'm part of the community engagement team at Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. Undercurrents is one way to tell the rich stories coming from our community of partners, program participants, staff, and others. Undercurrents is sponsored in part by Kindred Credit Union. Kindred's purpose is cooperative banking that connects values and faith with finances, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. Kindred is thankful to have supported and participated in MCC's Power of Partnership fundraising event on October 27th, featuring Malcolm Gladwell, which reinforced the power of Kindred's long-standing partnership with MCC. This episode is about a lot of things. In this very special episode, I sit down virtually with best-selling author, public speaker, podcast wizard, and honorary Mennonite, Malcolm Gladwell. We cover a lot of ground, from pacifism, to soccer, to climate change, and more. But first, I have to answer your first question, which is, Ken, how on earth did you get Malcolm Gladwell to come on Undercurrents? The short answer is, we asked, and he said sure. The longer answer is that Malcolm had generously agreed to speak at a gala event celebrating MCC's centennial, which was originally scheduled for 2020. But a certain pandemic popped up, and we had to reschedule again, and again, and again. Finally, in October of 2022, we were able to hold this event in person at Bingaman's Conference Center in Kitchener. The room of over 600 people was buzzing. The silent auction was not so silent. The food and drink was delicious, and Malcolm was at his most eloquent. At the end of this episode, I'll play you a clip of his concluding remarks, which literally gave me goosebumps. But for now, enjoy this conversation with me and Malcolm Gladwell. Welcome to Undercurrents. Thank you. My pleasure. I have to say, first of all, thank you um, for coming out to speak at our MCC fundraiser at the end of the last month. Everyone was raving about it, including myself. Um, it was very generous of you to do that for, for MCC. And I don't know if you've heard this already, but I'll let you know that we, our goal, if you remember, was to raise um, $100,000 from that event for the work of MCC. And I'm happy to share with you that we've exceeded that goal. Oh, good. Yeah. So thank you so much for, for making that possible. Um, I know you grew up, it's well known, I think, at this point, that you've grown up among Mennonites in Elmira, which is a little town mm -hmm. just north of where I am in Kitchener. Uh, but, you know, you've been in the States for the last 30 years, uh, you know, in New York City, of, of all places, a very un-Mennonite place. Um, what, is, what has kept you connected to Mennonites? Well, my family is still all in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, and uh, very, you know, my brother and sister-in-law and mother, and my, when my father was alive, my father all are, you know, attend Mennonite churches, and I have... Many of my friends from growing up are Mennonites, so it's very much a, 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 a part of my own upbringing. Um, so, uh, and I, you know, I, it's funny, in this, in this season of Revisionist History, I had done a bunch of two episodes that touch on Mennonites. So, you know, I've, I've, I, although I have been gone for some time from Kitchener-Waterloo, I've not, I've not left my Mennonite connections behind. All right. Well, just to that point, as an aside, really, which I I know you don't mind asides, but um, we we have a couple mutual friends, um, Jim Leptison. Oh yeah, was uh, my pastor when I was 
in my formative teenage years. And uh, no, I didn't know that, Jim. I've known Jim forever. Jim, Jim was just staying at my house last week. He told um, me this. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. And we were on we were on holiday in Italy, like in um, just a few weeks before that. Yes, he's he's uh, the uh, his family, and he's very he's um, best friends with my brother, and um, his wife is best friends with my sister in law, and so I I have adopted the Leptisans, or they have adopted me is a better way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I'll and um, the the other person that I, which I didn't know, I heard this more recently, is Fred Redekop. Oh yeah who yeah. uh, was a f- former colleague of mine here at MCC and and uh he was the pastor of Florida Mennonite Church. I grew up um much of my time in Elmira was on the northern end of Elmira and we could practically see Florida Mennonite Church from um our house. In fact, I would run by it um on an almost daily basis on my um when I went running and so yeah yeah that um and friends of mine went there so yeah another point of connection yeah yeah good um so i i want to get back to sort of um so the theme of, of this fundraiser that you spoke at was the power of partnership mm-hmm. and you used um some brilliant stories you used um examples of uh philanthropy in higher education and among other things um how to improve a soccer team Mm-hmm. Uh, to make a point about sort of strong link, what, what you called strong link uh, versus weak link approaches to improving the world, uh, essentially. Um, could you give a brief summary of that point? Because some of the mm-hmm. questions I want to ask later on sort of pivot on these points of, of uh, weak link, strong link things. Yeah, a strong link system is a system that is improved by improving its um, strongest links, its highest quality um, so if you think of, uh, if you're running a software company, um, there is a very small number of software programmers who are an order of magnitude better than everybody else. You want better code, you find an all-star software programmer and plug that person into your company. That's a strong link system. A weak link system is a system that's only as good as its weakest link. And there's tons of examples of that. You know, I was talking about a lot of modern medicine is very weak link. You have 20 people working together in a complex operation. If even one of them is deficient, the efforts of everyone else can be sabotaged. A soccer team is a weak link system. Um, soccer teams are only as good as their poorest player. Um, so you want to make that system better. You look to the bottom and make the person or thing at the bottom um, perform a little better. You've serviced that end of the... So my question was, is the world we live in today a weak link or a strong link world? And I think it used to be a strong link world. The 19th century is, and the early 20th century are strong link. Those are strong link systems. You know, why does the West perform so well in that era? Because their best schools are the best. Their, you know, their best are the best. Their best entrepreneurs are the best. Their, you know, their their best violinists are the best. I could go on. Their best doctors are the best. That's the way you made yourself good in that era. Today, I would argue that oh, we're in the, going in the opposite direction, where we look more and more like a, so- a soccer team, and that the way to to improve society in our present climate is to attend to your weak links. 
And so that was, I, you know, my argument in the talk I gave at MCC was that um, an organization like MCC, which is weak link oriented, MCC is not trying to make Harvard a stronger school, is it? <laughs> it's not. It's not trying to make, you know, Rosedale in Toronto an even better place for rich people to spend their time. Um, it's looking to 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 lift up the 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 most marginal and disadvantaged aspects of any society. And my argument was that is a very 21st century um, uh, mission, that that idea has never been more important than it is now, and that the world we're moving towards is one in which um, servicing weak links is the surest path to improving outcomes. Right, and... Um... So I want to I want to pivot from there to you know MCC Mennonites generally um, and the Anabaptist denomination as a whole, as you know, um, one of the key tenets of of that particular faith is the peace part. Um, and so, if there's one thing that um, peace churches have um, have a deep concern about, it's war, right, and mm -hmm. conflict. And um, your latest book, The Bomber Mafia, um, you explore um, uh, war, and in, in particular, all, sort of all the characters involved in the firebombing campaign of Tokyo at the end of World War II. Um, uh, it was, you know, a horrible event. And I should I should disclose here as well that this this topic is is personal to me, in that my my father lived through that bombing of Tokyo. Oh wow! And um, he has very vivid memories of surviving that and has um and the trauma that mm -hmm. that um that gave him and the subsequent healing as well and he's he's written about that eloquently but as i was listening through the the podcast part of it um which you've made that into a, an amazing uh, audiobook as well but i was definitely um conflicted as i listened through this you know because it's um this is kind of going behind the scenes of folks who who caused my father and his his people a great deal of pain but one of the characters i um that caught my attention was this relatively minor character and his name was antonin raymond um mm -hmm. could you describe who he was and um and I'll, I'll i'll jump a question off of that um yeah so raymond is a um is an architect uh a very, a very um, brilliant American architect who moves to Japan in the 1930s and becomes the most important American architect in Japan, um, and one of the more successful architects in Japan. But he, he is a, he's an American who immerses himself in Japanese culture, and then when hostilities break out between the U.S. and Japan, he moves back home, and he's recruited by the U.S. Army when war breaks out, um, to help the, the, the Air Corps, what turns into the Air Force, um, understand what they were going to be bombing when they bombed Japan. In other words, what are the structures like? Um, you know, because each, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to obliterate a city, a city made out of bricks or behaves differently than one made out of stone, behaves differently than one made out of wood. So they had him actually go to a remote corner of the Utah desert and build a replica Japanese city based on his um, 
intimate knowledge of Japanese building techniques, and then they would proceed to bomb it and learn what worked best. And so, you know, you're right. He's a, he's a minor character, but he's a an extraordinarily kind of poignant one because here was a man who had devoted his life to Japan and who was in love with Japanese culture. And then he's called home and is enlisted in a campaign to better, to, to help the U.S. Air Force better understand how to destroy Japanese culture. Um, and I just can't, I never understood how he managed to kind of um, survive, psychologically survive what he was asked to do. In his autobiography, I point out he, it's a paragraph and then he moves on. Um, but it, surely it's a paragraph that masks an extraordinary amount of 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 pain yeah and that's that's kind of exactly what grabbed me about it and you ask a good question like how did he survive that how did he grapple with it and my question is this sort of is in a larger sense a question of this idea of like duty to your nation Mm -hmm. right which has such power especially in times of war and especially in times of the world wars when nations were rallied in such um, intense ways as a, as a people. Um, but it does make me think about national, you know, to, to expand further nationalism and, and that sense of duty to your nation, despite it being perhaps against your own wishes and your own values. And I, I guess a, one question is like, how can, how does nationalism or that sense of duty to your nation, how can that hinder peace or weak link work mm-hmm. oh i see uh i took uh, a little left turn at the end there yes yes i see what you're i see where you're going with that well the um i think on one one level the answer is pretty straightforward which is that um the problem i mean there are some good things that come from love of country and service to country but the pro the overwhelming problem with it is that it's a it's a set of obligations and uh, uh, that impose themselves on or trump other obligations. So, you know, the, it supersedes once you have decided that the single most important obligation you have as a human being is to serve your country, then that tends to sweep aside everything else that might or take precedence over everything else that might conceivably be of importance in your life. Love of God. Uh, service to fellow man, charity, uh, devotion to peace, all those kinds of things which normally, you know, most people have, not just people who are pacifistic in nature, most people have, under most circumstances, a devotion to all those things, right? They do want to be nice to their to their fellow human beings. They do believe in peace as a ultimate end. They do believe in serving others. It's just that when it comes to wartime, they, uh, the, the priorities of nationalism trump every one of those other considerations. The, the pacifist is someone who refuses to let that, that, that um, national, those, those concerns of nationalism take precedence. So I think the, to, to answer your question about weak links, that our devotion to serving 
the weakest links in society is really only truly meaningful if we don't let other considerations take precedence over it, right? The So there's no way to be uh, someone who is in the game, this who is serving these particular interests or who decided to be a pacifist and not be an absolutist. You can't, the minute you compromise, you, you can't be a pacifist and someone who's also willing to compromise your belief system. Right. I mean, then if if you're willing, someone who's willing to compromise, then you're not a pacifist anymore. Right. That's not all. No, not all belief systems depend on that degree of absolute commitment. Right. There are many belief systems that work quite well with compromise. I can be a I can be a fiscal conservative and very happily and fruitfully compromise all the time. I can say, well, actually, I'm a but you know, in a in a if we're in the middle of a depression, the government really should spend a lot of money. That could be told. I can still be I can still be someone committed to small and frugal government who will concede that there are moments in time when we have to do something very different. That doesn't mean that I'm not a fiscal conservative. It just means I'm a thoughtful person who understands that these 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 ideological um, uh, commitments are not absolute, but if you're a pacifist, can't play that game. When right? it comes to war. Yeah, you can't say I'm a pacifist until my country is at stake, in which case I'll give all those beliefs up and happily go to war. You're not a pacifist if you, you know. It is a commitment to behaving under a certain way under extreme conditions. That's the nature of the belief system. Mm -hmm. And as you may know, early Anabaptists were uh, stuck to their guns and, and paid for it with their lives. Not just early Anabaptists. Uh, pacifists in the First World War were imprisoned, and some of them died in prison in the United States uh, on behalf of their belief. Um, so it's you know it's not a it's something that's happened in in modern times as well. Yeah, it really um, as a Mennonite myself, <laughs> that really puts it puts the question hard to me, you know, what would I be willing to to die for those convictions and to, for that stance, that theolo that peace theology. And um, well, speaking of um, convictions, um, there is in some way, and duty to the nation, there, there was, was and is a way um, for pacifists to serve their nation without fighting. And that was the the conscientious objector uh, designation um, where Mennonites could, for example, serve the nation not by fighting, but by serving the country in other ways, like, you know, volunteering, volunteer work, mm -hmm. essentially, like whether mm -hmm. it's manual labor for um, infrastructure work um, or serving in hospitals. And one of these very people you highlight quite eloquently, Lester Glick in, in Revisionist History, who it turns out was a Mennonite and, and a conscientious objector, and who served his nation uh, to great sacrifice to himself personally. Um, so th this is someone for, for the context here. You know, so this you did a series in this last episode, uh, last uh, season of Revisions History about the, the now infamous Minnesota starvation experiment, mm -hmm. um, where people not only starved themselves to further scientific understanding. Um, and to ultimately, you know, help feed the hungry in more effective ways. Um, but they did so willingly and 
not, this is a spoiler alert, but they, this was not only something they subjected themselves to, but was in fact their idea, which was something they willingly volunteered for. Um, contrast this group with um, another group of people um, in an episode that, that that's called Outliers, Outliers Revisited, where you um, had a group of seniors at the University of, of Pennsylvania. You revealed to them a certain privilege that they had that contributed to them being at this elite institution. And uh, you then pitched an idea of how university admissions could be far more equitable. But much to your surprise, they resisted. <laughs> they resisted quite strongly against uh, mm -hmm. making that process more fair. Um, what what are the diff what is the difference between these two sets of people and and how do we get on this scale of maybe extremes how do we get from moving the moving the needle from from those of us who are holding tightly to our privilege to toward more toward those who can who sacrifice for the greater good yeah well that's a uh uh a big, a big question, which I could talk about for many, many. We could all talk about for very many hours. But I guess I would say a couple of things. One is that um, on the side of the, to begin with the starvation experiment um, that all these conscientious objectors participated in during the Second World War, um, th that is hard to understand. It could never happen today, and uh, not because. Um, what was done by the by the men and the raw men to themselves was particularly egregious. Although they did suffer a great deal, the reason, it, the fundamental reason why it couldn't happen today is that we don't have the same kind of richly developed sense of what sacrifice is in today's world. So, the idea that somebody would um, willingly take on a burden or suffer for some cause that they believe to be larger than themselves is an idea that's largely alien from the way that we talk uh, today about suffering. So we tend to think of suffering as being a bad thing under almost all circumstances. Um, and part of that is a good thing, that we're, we have a heightened sensitivity to uh, cruelty and to mindless suffering. But at the same time, we seem to have become indifferent to what I would call mindful suffering, which is the kind of suffering that somebody willingly takes on after a great deal of thought and um, reflection because they believe some larger good will come of that. We, we, we really struggle with that. I mean, if you just look at, I talk about this in the episode, but you know, it was very hard, for example, for people to for us to accept the idea that some people might willingly volunteer for a COVID vaccine trial. In other words, come forward and say, go ahead and infect me to see whether a candidate vaccine works. Because I know that if a, if a bunch of us do that, we can shrink the time it takes to develop a vaccine by six months. And as a result, tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of people might, might live who might otherwise die. Um, virtually impossible for an experiment like that to get authorized today, even though we all know the the risk of somebody dying in a challenge trial is relatively small and the benefits were enormous. We just don't, we can't wrap our mind around the fact that somebody would want to 
take that kind of risk on behalf of others. So our, our kind of public conversation about doing things, giving up something for the greater good has become very impoverished. Um, and I would say that it's become impoverished in large part because of the decline of, this is one aspect of the decline of religiosity in our society. That the, we've sort of forgotten that there were very clear um, social consequences to the central role that religious life and practice paid in Western societies. And one was to make it easier to understand the idea of what true sacrifice was, because the New Testament story is a story about sacrifice. That's what it is, right? So if you are raised on the centrality of that story, it's much easier for you to understand, oh, giving up some portion of myself for someone else is one of the greatest things I can do as a human being, right? That's what, that is what we're put on earth to do, um, to engage in that kind of thoughtful sacrifice. And so when religiosity is the center of your culture, that's almost second nature. We don't, we don't question that. We don't, we would never, we would never roll our eyes or laugh or be skeptical or critical of someone who wanted to engage in that kind of sacrifice. We, we get it, right? When religiosity goes away, excuse me, <clears throat> becomes really, really hard for people to understand sacrifice. So what's going on in the parallel case that you talked about of these students at Penn who are all enormously privileged? And as you say, I go there, and I won't go into the specifics of the episode, but I go there and I demonstrate to them that, hey, you know what? You guys were the beneficiaries of an enormous um, unearned advantage. And here's a way to level the playing field. Are you interested in leveling the playing field for and they're totally not interested in living, of in any way giving up their privilege. And that's because they have no model of sacrifice. It's gone, right? That's what it means to live in a, in a secularized world. Um, and, you know, I think that's kind of a shame. Um, there's, there's just who, where, if you're an upper middle, middle class, highly intelligent, you know, privileged kid in an Ivy League school, what role model is there anywhere in your life of, of sacrifice? Hmm. Right? Doesn't exist. Right? You don't learn about it. You don't have ex you have some vague historical examples, but not a real kind of living example from your own faith. And you don't know people. I mean, how few like what are the the two uh, religious denominations in the in North America that make a habit out of service are the Mormons and the Mennonites, right? So what are the, what are the odds that one of these students at Penn is either a Mormon or a Mennonite or is very close to a Mormon or a Mennonite? Really small. <laughs> so they don't even know anyone who does any kind of service to others, right? On a limited, they know people who kind of like maybe volunteer once a week. That's probably as far as it goes. But give up a year or two years of their life? Mm -hmm. No, they don't know that. So they, so where are they? So, so I came to them and said, are you willing to make a sacrifice of the privilege of your class on behalf of the greater good? And of course they said no. 
It's like it's, I was like I was speaking a foreign language to them. <laughs> That's really interesting, and it, and to me, it also feels like, uh, and this may be simplistic, but it seems to me a matter of degree as well of of sacrifice. Where I mean, th- again, this goes back to the New Testament. There's a story there of of um, the wealthy man who who threw in a ton of money at the offering, and and the, and the woman, the very poor woman, who gave her last few pennies, mm-hmm. and Jesus saying, "This woman gave." gave more than these rich guys who who gave out of abundance and um by the way this this is a, a really crucial point which I've often I often wanted to do a a um uh, a, a, an entire podcast episode on this you know the we routine we make the same mistake today over and over and over the billionaire gives a hundred million dollars to Harvard University and it's staggered over. 10 years or 20 years and he's getting a tax write off on and when you when you finally run down and do all the math you discover that that person is actually you know substantially less generous than the typical person who's giving money in their church offering or giving money to their local homeless group you know it, it, it you know and in fact you can look at aggregate data that um that Middle and lower middle class people give a higher percentage of their income to charity than do the wealthy. So it's like, I mean, it, this is like this. This is one of those kind of you would these biblical lessons, which is probably more apt today than it was in the in biblical times. Yeah, exactly. And uh, seeing you get fired up about this, and I know that you have uh, um, in recent years um, really taken it to. You know, for example, the the higher education, how, how things work in in the states, at least, and um, and as well, you you gave an eloquent uh, tirade against <laughs> private golf courses, <laughs> and uh, I think that was in L.A. Yeah. And so, uh, my question is, um, you know, as you as you sort of plant your flag on some of these issues, do you are you would you consider yourself an advocate? in some of these things? I mean, venturing from writing for interest's sake to sort of like wanting to affect change in an intentional way? Well, I, not really, because I don't think that um, writers such as myself are really, I mean, we can, sometimes we may think, we may flatter ourselves and to think that we're advocates, but we're not really. We're, we start conversations and advocates take those conversations and do something with them. Um, I don't, you know, uh, advocacy implies to my mind at least a much more direct connection between um, conversation and action. I'm not doing any of the action. I'm just doing the conversation. Right. John Stewart once said, he's like, advocacy um, is manual labor. The viral video that he could produce for part of his show on on Comedy Central, which puts shines a bright spotlight for ten minutes, but that issue doesn't go away because of that bright spotlight there for for, for ten minutes. It's it's the it's as you say it's it's taking that conversation piece and the action that needs to happen, the manual labor that has to happen for months, years, decades, sometimes. Um, so to that point, if if you are yourself one who initiates the conversation but not Necessarily, one you then pass the baton in some in some sense to to advocates. Uh, do you have any advice for those who do want to create that 
that change and I'm not particular on any issue, but, um, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's a, that's a very kind of, um, broad question. I am struck. I'll answer it this way. You know, the, um, the event, I wanted to write about this, but I was quite taken by, uh, in, I know you're in Canada, but in, in watching the United States, you'll um, the recent decision by the Supreme Court um, to essentially uh, do away with Roe versus Wade and reverse a generation of policy on um, abortion. Um, what is interesting about what happened there is it's actually, you know, and I'm not speaking to the merits of the Supreme Court decision. Um, um, or my personal feelings about abortion. I'm just, I'm just l- looking at that as a case study of, advo- of advocacy. There is a, if you look at that, there were a group of people who at no time did the members of the anti-abortion movement ever um, have a majority of Americans on their side. Uh, when they started their campaign in the aftermath of Roe versus Wade, they were a distinct minority. I mean, there was nobody who was. And if you, so the question is, how did they do it, right? And the answer is they did it by A, being extraordinarily patient. It took 50 years, right? That's, first of all, which is a mind-boggling amount of time. So this is a group of people who, I mean, several generations of them, who plugged away for 50 years in order to win a battle that was very important to them. And secondly, they were very, uh, they tried a series of strategies and settled on, their strategy was essentially to use the court system to kind of subvert the democratic process. And and they gave up on any kind of like, public, you know, in, the, in the early stages of the anti-portion movement, they were like blowing up clinics and killing um, doctors, they stopped doing that, and they ended up going this kind of covert route, going after um, uh, the judiciary. The, my point is not to say that's the best possible route, but simply that there's two things that are in, that are going on here. One is that they were willing to be patient, and two, they were willing to experiment. That they did not commit to one set of tactics or one strategy over another. They tried out a bunch of things. And then they eventually realized, oh, the weak link in the American democratic system is the judiciary. I mean, judiciary has all loads and loads and loads of power that um, people don't generally recognize. Um, that's a, but that's a, that's a good model for anyone who wants to do, who's fighting any kind of battle. I think our time horizons are too short, and I think that we decide our we sh- we're we're um, uh, we're too ideologically committed to a specific strategy when we should be agnostic. We should be experimentalists. We should just say, look, let's try seven different things. If I'm terribly committed to ending homelessness in the United States, which is an issue that I've been writing about for years and years and years, and I would describe myself as being some, that's probably one of the issues that I think is, ought to be top of mind for um, North Americans. I have, you know, my commitment to that issue is absolute, but my choice of, do I have a very, very clear idea what the right strategy is? No, I don't. And I, 
I, I think that anyone who says they know exactly how to bring about an end to homelessness in America uh, is fooling themselves. I think we gotta try seven different things. I mean, we have, if you look at the history of the anti-homeless mo- movement, um, you know, people have been trying various strategies, but um, I think we need to be as intentional in our experimentation as the anti-abortion movement was. Those those guys were really smart about it, right? They tried a bunch of things and they learned. And if, you know, the battle against homelessness has been going on in one form or another on a high level for, you know, 15 years now, they sort of got smart. But we still haven't figured out what the right approach is. Right? We're still flailing. You can walk through the streets of one of the wealthiest cities in the world, San Francisco, and be inundated with homeless people. You can walk through that. I went through. A, I went to Vancouver and went for a walk, and I don't know Vancouver at all. Found myself on a three-block area that was, uh, I mean, where the where there were more. It was. It was. I, there was. There was more homelessness in and social dysfunction concentrated in one area that I've ever seen in my life. This is in one of Canada's wealthiest cities. So it's like, I mean, this is not a movement that has had any great success in making inroads, right? So like people I think need to um, one, adjust, like I said, adjust their expectations and B, start to be a, a lot more kind of thoughtful about let's experiment and see if something's not working, you stop, try something else, right? The other piece I'll say, or, or, or that that your conversation brings to mind, is the idea of yeah that the timeline piece and how, um, you know, one major advocacy campaign that MCC itself is is starting out on um, is the uh, climate crisis, and yeah. and that being kind of like talk about the biggest context existential kind of campaign that you can think of. And how one, I went to a church um, a couple Sundays ago and, and kind of got them to sort of share about what their concerns were and just to sort of, again, um, start that conversation, as you say, mm-hmm. uh, for them to kind of um, get their wheels moving again. And uh, this is a church I was very committed to. But a lot of uh, the notes that came up on these little sticky notes was the challenge of feeling overwhelmed, of feeling a sense of despair around something that they've cared about for a long time and but have seen relatively little um well it's been going back or like it's been getting worse and another piece of that is sort of the recognition that it's not enough to say like i'm going to start composting i'm going to plant my little pollinator garden these changes have to happen at a very high level and at a massive mm-hmm. scale. And for that, you need political engagement. But when you talk to every single, pol- I mean, we just had a municipal election here in Waterloo Region, and every single one of these people on their platform, there's there's uh, there's housing, like affordable housing is a major thing, and we need to t- tackle this. And when we talk about the federal election, everybody's talking about climate change, and that's a crisis. And so I guess part of it is like, the, the the seeming deadlock or um, not to be cynical or, or despairing about it, but it, you know, how do we move past the rhetoric of everyone saying, yes, we all agree this is a problem. And then 
nothing changing because of yeah of uh, politics and of of you know towing the party line and all that kind of stuff uh, there's i don't know if there's you can find a question in there but it's just a well i mean it goes to the question of expectation um you know the this was never going to be something that you were going to win in a generation now some people say well the problem is we we are running out of time um that that's a, that is kind of a separate reality that um, the truth is to turn around a society in something as fundamental as this is going to is you're just not going to do it in 10 years and you if you don't do it in 10 years you can't get you can't get uh, dis, uh, you, you, you can't get disappointed and dis, disheartened um, it was never going to happen that quickly Um and you sort of have to accept that fact, like at the, you know, you're you're making the big ship turn around, um, and so it, it, once you realize it's not going to happen in a generation, then you have to think you you have to have goals that fit that timeline. Um, so you know the, um, and you have to you know there there's a and I, I don't think that's that kind of that that's not about giving up. That's just about being a little more realistic and helping people understand that we're doing something now really so that your kids and grandchildren can live in a different world. Um, and uh, you're, we're laying the groundwork now, the grassroots groundwork for change that um, is going to happen sometime off in the future. But you should feel that, that you have productively contributed to this change if you are if you're involved in in laying the foundation, you're not going to be around for the house. It's fine, right? It's yeah, and exactly, and, and well, and this brings us right back to the idea of weak link work, the soccer team, right? Mm -hmm. The soccer team. The advocacy is is, is a soccer sport, and um, you mentioned in your talk the um, the uh, Tottenham Hotspur forty eight pass goal sequence, the soccer team that passed the ball 48 times before scoring and um i actually looked that video up and <laughs> it's first of all it's incredible um how long it takes mm -hmm. and secondly the thing that i noticed was the um in soccer if you watch a soccer game it's not like we're all charging forward at all times you know there, there's a lot of passing back you make some inroads into your offensive zone, and then you got to pass it back. You you run up against it. You got to pass it, back. and sometimes it goes all the way back to your own goalie. Mm -hmm. And I and I just, it just struck me that in, in some ways the for folks trying to to advocate for change for to to create real change, it can feel like that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there is a. Uh, it's not yet. Yeah, it's not this kind of linear. Um, uh, process you you take one step uh two steps you know one step back for every for every two steps you take forward so it is confusing in the um and about halfway through that 48 goal sequence you you begin to wonder whether whether anything is ever going to happen right which is another useful um you know another kind of useful lesson um that sometimes we're unaware of how successful we're being um, you know, the, uh, you know, I was having a conversation, um, 
with someone who I would describe as a climate change skeptic, but what's interesting if you listen to his, I was listening to his arguments, the skeptics' arguments today are different than the skeptics' arguments of a generation ago. So it's no longer, you know, nothing is happening. Now it's um, something is something is happening, but I think it might have happened before, or something is happening. I don't know if think we can do anything about it. It's a very different argument, right? That's that's actually progress. That's kind of past number twenty-four in the forty-eight past sequence. When you move someone away from nothing's happening, that's a big, big win, and it's really, really hard now to hold the position that nothing's happening, right? And so. That, you know, so I, 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 I tend not to be as gloomy um, as others in terms of our, uh, um, I also think that, that, um, uh, that, that, our, that technological answers to climate change problems are uh, probably underrated and that technological, we have to remember technology is always a lot more dynamic than we imagine. There's gonna be a lot of technical fixes that we just can't imagine yet. So with that in the back pocket and with the idea that um, that the, the ground is shifting in terms of this, what skepticism sounds like makes me more optimistic perhaps than others. Hmm. Um, I want to switch to sort of a broader theme of your work, which is, you know, you, you've a trademark, I would say, of your work has been to reexamine things. And we've already talked about how you know, in terms of, for example, long-term change, we need to re-examine our, our approaches and we can't stick to just the one thing. Um, what, you know, and, and also to reveal, as you've done, some counterintuitive truths uh, with mm -hmm. the use of data. This question may be a little unfair to you because this is not, strictly speaking, your your business, the nonprofit world, but what counterintuitive truths is the nonprofit sector missing, perhaps? Like, what, what data should organizations like MCC be examining? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know whether this is relevant to MCC, but um, I do think that the kind of lack of coordination um, uh, among nonprofits is sometimes problematic. That, um, you know, there are, not all problems, but there are certain problems that do require a certain amount of scale. And five organizations working in concert can sometimes do, you know, 20 times as good as they can working all by themselves. Um, and so I would say that benefits of scale tend, I would say in the nonprofit world are undervalued, that organizations are sometimes um, too uh, kind of, uh, too, too focused on their own little backyard. Um, or possessive about possessive about their own resources and their own that would be one um and the other thing is that i would you know i do think that sometimes um uh that uh data the use of you know when you talked you, talk, you talked about data i was on i'm on the board of a of a a nonprofit which is a data analytics nonprofit and all they do is use data to try and answer questions that other people in the field can put into practice. And being on that group is called Sergo. Being on the Sergo board has kind of um, convinced me that 
there needs to be a kind of data revolution in the nonprofit world. The good intentions are not sufficient to make a change. That you really have to be as sophisticated as you know any other marketplace actor if you want to really make a difference. You know, you need to ask yourself. You know, the I'll give you a random example. I read a big study recently that looked at the, um, uh, or I, 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 I good, yeah, I read a, I read a good study recently that looked at the. Um, uh, what is the effect of uh, um, eviction, I'm sorry, of rent control laws on landlords' behavior? And one of the answers is when you pass a rent control law, landlords become start to use eviction as a way to get rid of tenants when they want to kind of raise rents. So you see eviction rates go sky high when you impose rent control. That's something that if I was in a nonprofit and I was interested in affordable housing as an end. I that's the kind of study and data that I should be very interested in making sense of. Am I doing things that have counterintuitive results um, in the marketplace? So good intentions, having the good intention of wanting to further affordable housing, does not is not sufficient. I have to like actually spend some time thinking about okay, what's the? I happen to be someone who. You know, on the housing question, have come to believe that the simple, the single best thing we can do for affordable housing is just remove every regulatory impediment to building housing. I, you know, the libertarian position is, to my mind, the one most consistent with helping the most people. You should be able to build what you want within reason, wherever you want. And end of story. Um, and if that means we have some ugly buildings, you know what? I'd rather have ugly buildings than people living on the street. I'm I'm kind of over the preciousness of of many. Well, you know that position is a position. It's based on my reading of data, of studies of you know of you know, and it's not. There's a lot of good intention stuff there. That's just simply blind to where the um, where the data points us. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you, Malcolm. Um, just a few more questions. This is a question that that I saw you, uh, you were in an interview a couple of years ago with uh, Channel Four News. Uh, you were asked, you sort of, what drives you, and um, you said you love discovering things, and and in particular, discovering ways in which your own understandings uh, have been wrong or incomplete, and um, that act of learning and relearning. And um, first of all, that's inspiring to me, um, and, and it, because I think it's. Um, not a not something that a lot of people intuitively think to do. We we like to find things that reinforce what we already believe and take some courage to to get out of that. Um, but my question is a sort of a general: what What are some things that you've had to relearn over your years of writing? And in some ways, you are vulnerable in the sense that you put things in writing. You put it in print. It's on the page. Here's what I here's what I've thought, and here's what I you know over the years and then maybe look back on things and think, well, maybe that was just... Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, there's numerous examples. Some of my, if you look at the way I've written about crime over the years in all my books, it's, I've taken positions in more recent books that contradict positions I took in some of my earlier books. Um, that's one example. Um, I think I've, you know, I was talking to someone about this. I once, years ago, wrote a piece about a, uh, a woman named Susan Love, who was a kind of dissenter on the orthodoxy about um, 
uh, hormone replacement therapy for women. And I was kind of dismissive of her dissent, and then she turned out to be right. And I thought a lot about why I made that error. And so I, th- I you know, one of the things I've tried to be is, uh, is never be dismissive. I mean, you can have a honest quarrel with someone, but there's a big difference between an honest quarrel and being dismissive. So there is a way to, every time you disagree with someone, you need to leave the door open to the possibility that you're wrong and the person you're disagreeing with is right. Um, and so leaving the door open has been something that I've tried harder to do. Um, and yeah, that would be one big difference. I love being dismissive. It's just so much easier, <laughs> isn't it? We all do. Um, Malcolm, if you could, this is a real indulgence, but would you be able to... At this point, I asked Malcolm to record a short line of copy for me, which you heard at the beginning of this episode. Hello, this is Malcolm Gladwell, and you're listening to Undercurrents, a podcast from the Mennonite Central Committee. Nice. Good. That was fun. Thank you, Malcolm. Yeah. Say hi to Jim if you see him. I will. Appreciate your time with us. Really, again, thank you for your generosity and, and just what you've contributed for MCC and and uh, pleasure to meet you and chat. That was fun. Okay. Thank you, Malcolm. Well, there it is. An interesting conversation with a very interesting person. As promised, I'll finish with Malcolm's closing comments from the Power of Partnership fundraiser he spoke at in October, in which he brings home his point about weak link thinking, caring for the least of these, and what it means for our world today. Right? It's like that famous soccer sequence from Tottenham Hotspur. 48 passes, to get one goal. And what does that mean? That everyone on the team has to touch the ball once and everyone on the team has to make, be capable of making a successful pass. Now, if there is anyone in this society who I think understands this lesson implicitly, it's all of you, right? It's Mennonites. Mennonite community is a community devoted to weak links, always has been. That's the, that is the, uh, the lessons. Those are the lessons you've carried around with you as a community for hundreds of years. But there's two things I think you have to remember. One is that your commitment to weak links is not a holdover from the past, right? It's not some vestige from your 17th century roots. It's a philosophy that has never been more important than today. It is a 21st century philosophy. The second thing you need to keep in mind is even though all of you know implicitly the importance of weak links, the world around you does not. We still live in a society where a man can give $400 million to an institution that already has $53 billion and think that he's doing the world a service. So my challenge to all of you is to go out and tell the world a message that it desperately needs. The last must be first. Our problems cannot be solved in isolation. Building a better community requires teamwork, and teams in our world are only as strong as their weakest link. We're not playing basketball anymore. We're playing soccer. Thank you. I'd like to thank Malcolm Gladwell again for generously giving of his time to engage with MCC and for encouraging all of us in our weak link work. Thanks to Kindred Credit Union for sponsoring not only Undercurrents, but the Power of Partnership event as well. Undercurrents is produced with help from Kristen Kong, composer Brian McMillan, sound mixer Francois Goudreau, and graphic artist Jesse Bergen. Finally, thank you for listening. 
If you're new to Undercurrents, have a listen around to some other episodes for stories of miracles, reconciliation, radical acceptance, and more. Please share and subscribe wherever you listen. My name is Kenogasawara. Thanks for listening, and have a great rest of your day.